Welcome, everyone, to another edition of Broadcaster Hour. I'm Roger Hoover with you from Birmingham, Alabama. Of course, we've got Kyle Crooks from Gainesville, Florida, and we're joined in New England by one of the voices of summer in New England each and every year, and now gearing up for his 40th season with the Boston Red Sox, Joe Castiglione. Joe, it's great to see you. How's everything going? Okay, great to be with you guys. We're down here at Fort Myers now, hoping spring training starts, but it's not looking too good. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where it's just kind of a wait and see right now, Joe. But um, this is this is your time where you finally get some time to decompress, I guess. And, you know, we talked to Pat Hughes the other day of, of the Cubs and, you know, how, how you spend your time in, in the offseason. What is what is the offseason like for you as you gear up for another long, long stretch of baseball here coming up, hopefully? Well, in the past, I taught 29 years at Northeastern University and self-designed broadcast course in 12 years at Franklin Pierce University in New Hampshire. But uh, since then, uh, since uh, I left those positions after 2013, because our seasons were going so long, uh, conflicting with the semesters, uh, we come to Florida, we come to Fort Myers, where we have a second home in the month of November, and then back January through spring training. So uh, we're loving it here. and. Uh, Lord is wonderful and we just hope there's baseball. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the, the whole COVID era broadcasting and, and not being on the road, being on the road and, and not knowing where you're going to do games from, how did you adjust to, to all that? Not being at the ballpark for road games, calling games off of monitors, how tough of an adjustment was that for you? And how, how do you think all of that went? Well, I think we did, uh, and generally all broadcasters did a pretty good job with it, uh, and maybe we spoiled them because you wonder if uh, some of these broadcast companies are going to go on the cheap now and not want to travel uh, and not uh, do it the way we did. I think uh, the Red Sox do want us to travel. Uh, of course, everything's still up in the air right now with uh, the lockout and then, of course, uh, the COVID situation. So that remains to be seen, but it's a difficult adjustment. Uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, as I go back to my days as a kid doing uh, broadcasts and simulated broadcasts off television. So that, that helped, you know, when I was 12 years old, that type of thing, but it's not easy because you don't have any sound. You don't have any control uh, over what you see. And uh, most of all, you don't have any personal contact other than some zoom interviews that's about it and uh, you really do lose a lot uh, i think uh, you know the actual play-by-play -play, uh, was okay uh, sometimes you know you know if it's a replay or the live action um, but uh, it was an adjustment of course uh, uh, it's easier in terms of no travel i mean we went to fenway park some broadcasters did it from their home um and it was very strange to be at empty Fenway Park with five or six people in the whole ballpark, just us, the Spanish broadcasters and the security person. So uh, it was a different world completely. And we did it for two seasons. Now, hopefully you guys will be getting back on the road and back around the team once again. And uh, you mentioned as a kid, you would watch some games on television, start talking out loud, calling them out loud. I did the same thing uh, when I was growing up. But what was the spark of, uh, to get into sports casting for you? Well, I think listening to Mal Allen, the voice of the Yankees, I was a Yankee fan. I have to admit, hate to admit it sometimes, but that was a big thing. And uh, I think realizing around age 10 or 11 that I wasn't good enough to be a player. <laughs> 
I came to that uh, realization pretty soon. That was obviously what most of us first uh, would choose. Um, but it was the next best thing. And uh, you know, then the more uh, I learned about it, the more I wanted to do it. And, you know, you do everything in broadcasting when you start news, DJ. Uh, but baseball was always uh, the dream. Because I really didn't do any baseball till I did my first professional games. Even when I was in college uh, at Colgate University, I did football and basketball, but we had no power down by the baseball field, and we didn't have battery-operated equipment then. Plus, I don't have a baseball team anymore, much that I should get. <laughs> what was it about Mel Allen? What was it that resonated with you? I think his excitement. Uh, his vocabulary, his use of the language, uh, but most of all, his, and of course, he's an Alabama guy, as you well know. Uh, he had that uh, very charming, I think, slight Southern drawl. Uh, it, it was just the excitement that he projected and the way he described the game in great detail. Uh, he had tremendous uh, skills to paint the word picture, and I think. Uh, I modeled myself after that. And I had other mentors along the way who were wonderful. Uh, Bill O'Donnell, the former Oriole announcer, uh, who I met when I was in college, and Ernie Harwell. Uh, those two were very, very significant. Ernie Harwell, of course, uh, native of Washington, Georgia, and, uh, over 50 years in the broadcast booth in the big leagues. And, of course, my first partner, Ken Coleman, was a great mentor with the Red Sox. Uh, when I came to Boston in 1983 and had seven wonderful years with Ken. Was baseball, Joe, always the, the big passion for you? I know you started out doing football and, and basketball, but did you know eventually that you wanted to do baseball full-time in your career? Was that always the dream? It was always the dream. And I think because it was a full-time job, but I, besides the love of the game, I mean, football was once a week. Um, and I always wanted to do radio baseball because when I started, I actually did TV baseball for the first uh, three years in the major leagues, uh, two with Cleveland, one with Milwaukee. And uh, in those days, we there was pre-cable. We did, only did 40 games. So uh, it was always my desire to do radio baseball and do it day after day. So uh, I think that was uh, always my first love. I mean, I, I love doing football. I love doing basketball. Uh, but baseball was number one because it's a daily game. And, you know, what was it like the, those first couple of years once you, you know, you go to Colgate and then you go to Syracuse and, and you're another Syracuse guy. We have so we have so many on the podcast because every Syracuse guy is high up in the industry now. Um, but what were those first few years like as, as you try to navigate the industry and, and eventually uh, land with the Boston Red Sox? Well, there are certainly a lot of ups and downs, uh, Kyle. I uh, worked at many, many radio stations part time. Uh, starting at Colgate University, uh, the student station, WRCU, where I was Joey C., the big cheese as a DJ, and did all the football and basketball from freshman year through senior year. Mainly, I didn't have a lot of competition. Most of those uh, guys I went to school with uh, were preparing for Wall Street careers, the last thing I would ever want to do. And, uh, you know, I had the opportunity to do the games, and we had some very good football teams led by uh, the great Oakland uh, Raider running back, Marv Hubbard at the time. Uh, and, uh, you know, our basketball uh, wasn't very good, but we did have uh, some great rivals like Dave Bing with Syracuse and 
so I, I did get to experience that. Uh, but I was given my first opportunity by a wonderful gentleman who just passed away a few weeks ago, just short of his 100th birthday, a guy named Lloyd Walsh in Utica, New York. Lloyd did Colgate football for some 38 years. And he would let me come over to WIUN in Utica to do the third quarter, and he would come to the college station to do the third quarter. I wasn't paid, but I got that professional experience on my resume. And uh, when I graduated, uh, I, and I worked summers, I worked weekends, I worked New Year's Day, Christmas Day, Christmas Eve at WELI in New Haven, which was a pretty powerful station doing news, uh, worked summer jobs as a DJ around Connecticut, um, as a uh, high school or a college uh, junior, I would hitchhike down Route 12B and from Hamilton, New York to Norwich, New York to do Sunday mornings uh, as the running the board and DJ and news at uh, a station in Norwich, New York, which is only about 30 miles from the Hall of Fame, uh, but a long way from it in many other ways. So I did all of those things. And when I graduated, uh, I took a job as uh, doing high school football in a talk show at a station in Meriden, Connecticut. I also had to do sales, which I absolutely hated. <laughs> and I couldn't see doing that. So when I couldn't get a better job after uh, about five months, I went to Syracuse for a grad program. And I worked there. I worked at Channel 3, WSYR Radio, doing everything. I was basically a booth announcer doing station IDs. Uh, but we also filled in on the Today Show cut-in news in the morning and sports on TV, uh, even the movie show uh, host at one in the afternoon. Uh, I just did everything there was to do for $2.25 an hour. And then, then on from there. <laughs> on from there, yeah. And I know part of your journey took you to Cleveland. What can you tell us about that and some of the first uh, pro games you got to do, including the uh, Cleveland Now Guardians on television? Well, my first uh, experience after I left Syracuse, I went to Youngstown, Ohio to anchor sports. I did the six and 11. I did six radio shows a day. I did Youngstown State football. Our quarterback was Ron Jaworski. We were 0 and 9. And uh, I did uh, everything there was to do there for two and a half years. Where I met my wife, so it was very productive in that regard. Got a lot of experience. Made about $140 a week. And then $15 a game. I asked my general manager if I could have a color announcer. He said, if you want to pay him, well, I was going to share my $15. So <laughs> I did the games alone. Fortunately, I did have an engineer. But anyway, uh, after two and a half years there, I moved to Cleveland, Anchor Weekend TV Sports. Did radio work uh, at a different station there, a store broadcast station, WJW, which is where Alan Freed was very famous, the great DJ many years before, but uh, I worked in Cleveland seven years and I, at the NBC O&O, the WKYC Channel 3, and in 1979, I went across town to get the Indians, do the Indians the 40 games. Uh, my first game ever was at Fenway Park, and it was really the first uh, professional uh, baseball game I had ever done. I did a couple of radio games in Westfield, Massachusetts in 1967, but 12 years later, I get my first big league job. And uh, we had a lot of fun. Was We were the youngest team in broadcasting. I was in my early 30s, and I worked with a late Fred McLeod. I believe he was 26 at the time. Fred went out of a long career 
with the Detroit Pistons and Cleveland Cavaliers. And uh, we did the 40 games. We had a team that was 81 and 80, first winning season in many years for Cleveland Indians at the time. Thank God for the rainout that put us over the top. We only played 161 games. But it was a lot of fun. But, you know, the uncertainty of the uh, business, uh, at the end of the season, we, our station lost the contract. We went to a competing station. They wanted their own people. So um, I only did a fill-in radio thing that year and stayed on TV doing uh, anchoring and went to Milwaukee in 81 to do it was called Select TV was the outfit. It was a pay cable situation. City wasn't wired, so it was a movie channel, and we did some Brewer games. Unfortunately, we had the strike, which cost uh, me several broadcasts. But in 82, I went back to Cleveland. We started a new uh, all-sports network, I think the first of its kind, the first regional sports network. We did Indians and Cavaliers. Um, we weren't very well funded, though. We our owner of the Cleveland Cavaliers was the owner of the regional sports network. And uh, he was not very well respected. Uh, in fact, it was so bad. They took the all-star game away from him and had the league run it. But anyway, uh, we got through that year. The next year I came to Boston. So been here ever since. And uh, what can you tell us about the process of getting that Red Sox job? Because it doesn't matter if it was 1983, 2022. I mean, it's so hard to make, get a full-time uh, Major League Baseball broadcasting job. What was that process like back then? That was a lot of blessings, really. I mean, I was very blessed to have the opportunity. Uh, the connections always help. Um, when I was at Channel 8 in Cleveland, just doing TV anchoring and reporting, uh, this, our station hired Casey Coleman, who was doing radio. Casey. Uh, late Casey Coleman, the son of Ken Coleman. And I uh, sort of showed him the ropes of TV, uh, how to edit video and that type of thing and put a package together. And John Miller was leaving to go to Baltimore and Casey told his dad about me. And of course I had watched Ken for many years, his career, my career followed his path. He went from New England, native New Englander, went to Cleveland where he did Cleveland Browns and Indians on TV. For many years, I went from New England to Cleveland and uh, anchored, and it just fit together. It, I let's see, I had one radio tape to send. That was about it, and videos, and uh, it just clicked that uh, Ken liked me, and Casey recommended me, and Ken recommended me to the Red Sox. And normally, we'd have broadcast doesn't want to much say into who we work with as a partner, but. They were going to a new station, WPLM in Plymouth, America's hometown, 50,000 watt FM, which was sort of revolutionary at the time. And they listened to Ken and he gave my tape to the Red Sox and uh, Jim Healy, the director of broadcasting, liked it. Uh, they checked me out with the Brewers and the Indians and they hired me. Of course, uh, I took the first offer I had and we went from there. So it was a lot of fun. I mean, working with Ken was really a treasure seven years we had together and i learned a lot he was so good especially in the big moments and you know i'm happy to admit i am a yankees fan i'm, I'm from northern new jersey and you know those those great yankees red Sox battles and think back to i i don't want to think back to 04 but i i, I can think back to 04 and 
the ALCS and just how it was slowly getting away from the Yankees and what it must have been like for you in that radio booth in 03, the, the Veritek A-Rod uh, fight and Don Zimmer coming out of the dugout. In its heyday, I guess we can say in its heyday, Yankees, Red Sox. What, what was that like from, from your perspective? Well, it certainly was exciting and, uh, you know, it was a bigger game than uh, most of the other games. You know, when I was a kid in New Haven, which is a little closer to New York than it is to Boston, where I was a Yankee fan, I knew no Red Sox fans. We had Brooklyn Dodger fans. We had New York Giants fans. But the Red Sox were terrible in the 50s. And uh, in many ways, they paid for their racism at the time. Uh, they were way behind. And uh, I didn't know any Red Sox fans. So it, it wasn't much of a rivalry if it were. It was only in the eyes of uh, Red Sox fans, certainly not Yankee fans. But I think it really started to boil over with Thurman Munson and Carlton Fisk and those great teams in the mid to late 70s. Uh, and then it was rekindled, of course, with uh, the 0304 because, you know, in the 80s, the Yankees weren't very good and the Red Sox. Uh, were, should have won more than they did. They did win divisions in 86, 88, and 90, but uh, Yankees were down at the time. But I think uh, in 03, it really started to percolate. And, you know, blowing that seventh game in 03 with Aaron Boone's homer. And then in 04, uh, with that great game where Veritek gave the leather sandwich to A-Rod and a great walk-off win as Bill Miller hit one of the bullpen off Mariano Rivera. Miller owned him. And then, of course, uh, what happened in 04, uh, down three to none. I just, I had no idea the Red Sox could rally to win. Kevin Millar said, don't let us win one because we're liable to keep going from there. My thought at the time was, hey, this Yankee team is not that good. They've got a lot of holes. We're better than that. There's no way we should be swept. And, of course, Poppy provided heroics in game four and five uh, and game six. Uh, with the help of uh, a couple of overturned calls and then game seven, a blowout. So the greatest comeback in baseball history, probably in sports history. It still haunts me every single day. Seeing David Ortiz on television now still haunts me uh, every single day, but um, I'm interested in your relationship with, with John and Susan in, in the Yankees booth, because John's been there obviously a very long time. Susan's been there for a long time now. And, and I know you, you guys had the chance to switch boots and I think it was 2018, a Sunday night baseball game and uh, seeing, seeing each other as often as you do. What's your relationship with John and, and Susan in that booth? Well, they're both very good friends, Carl. Uh, we uh, get together with them in the off season. I haven't done it since COVID, but we have an event at the Hebrew home uh, in uh, Riverdale, New York, right outside New York city, overlooking the Hudson where uh, the CEO is a great Red Sox fan. So he has me there. Uh, and they're also one of our sponsors, along with John and Susan. And we do uh, uh, a Q&A for the people who live there. And also it's broadcast uh, on WFAN. So uh, we, we have that relationship. I think we switched booths at least twice now and had a lot of fun. Uh, Susan and I text uh, a lot during the season and in the off season as well. Uh, John's got his flip phone. He's not really uh, that uh, computer skilled right now. I don't know if he's planning to, but he's a, he's a marvel going on. I think he's 84 now doing 
Red Sox, Yankee baseball, hardly ever missing a game. I think he went uh, his first 27 years or so without missing a game. But they're both very good friends. And, you know, we compare notes a lot, scouting reports. And uh, turns out we both have the same parent organization, Odyssey Broadcasting now, so we can compare notes there. But uh, they're both very good friends. And, of course, Susan grew up a Red Sox fan, and I grew up a Yankee fan. So that adds to the mix. Certainly does. And uh, so many great moments, uh, again, that you've got to be around with the Red Sox. And I am curious about one moment in particular, uh, pretty early in your tenure there, uh, 1986, uh, game six of the World Series. Where were you when the ball went through Bill Buckner's legs? I mean, I'm sure you were getting ready for a celebration, but what can you tell us about that night and everything that transpired? Roger, I was on a ramp at Shea Stadium. I did the top of the 10th inning when Dave Henderson homered, Marty Barrett drove in Wade Boggs, two-run lead, because that was my role. I did three innings, and then the 10th inning, we alternated extra innings. So at the break, at the middle of the 10th, I said to Ken Coleman, who was very gracious, and said, do you want me to go down to the clubhouse for the celebration, or do you want me to stay here and do the bottom of the 10th? And Ken said, it's strictly up to you. And I had two thoughts. Number one, he had been there 20 years. He should call the last out of the world championship. And I wanted to be down there and get drenched in champagne. So by the time I got at Chase Stadium was an archaic place, terrible facility, really. One tiny little elevator. I get down to the uh, bowels of Shea Stadium outside the clubhouse, and I see them bringing the champagne in. I can The door opens. I see the lockers colored with, color, covered with the protective uh, cellophane. They take Lou Gorman and Mrs. Yawkey in the clubhouse. We're waiting outside, and uh, there's a delay. And uh, sort of saddled up to a security guard who had a transistor radio by the time they had a couple of hits. And then I heard Bob Murphy's call, gets away, and here comes the tying run. So at that point, I started to run upstairs. I think we're going to the 11th inning. Game is tied on the wild pitch or pass ball, whatever you want to call it. So I was on a ramp because I couldn't uh, count on the elevator. And I heard the crowd. I didn't see the ball go through Buckner's legs till 2 a.m. Sports Center. But I knew something bad had happened when the crowd was going crazy. Uh, the Red Sox had lost. And remember, we had a 3 nothing lead in Game 7. Yeah. Game 7 was rained out on a Sunday night. Remember, we went with Joseph Michael Morgan, our later manager. Red Sox Hall of Famer to Rusty Stobbs restaurant after the rain out. And there was controversy because Earl Campbell was supposed to start game seven. And with a rain out, they went to Bruce Hurst. Uh, Earl Campbell wasn't happy. Bruce Hurst uh, was pitching on three days rest, I think. Maybe it was two days rest. But anyway, he spun a beauty. And uh, we had the three nothing lead. And it got away. So it was very, very heartbreaking. But at the time, I thought, well, you know, we got a good ball club. We're going to be here again. We'll be back soon. Little did I know it would take 18 years to get back to the World Series. 
Well, from one tough World Series moment to a really good one, uh, you mentioned with Kyle just a moment ago, uh, talking about the great comeback and that thrilling finish in the ALCS to move past the Yankees and that great comeback. And then you get to the World Series and you still have to break the curse for good. You're playing a very good St. Louis Cardinals team. You're able to win the first three games, getting ready for game four. Just as you were getting ready, knowing the Red Sox had an opportunity to do something they had not done since 1918, knowing you'd be on the mic for that final out, did you plan on what you would say or how did you kind of come to grips with how to handle that moment that you knew meant so much to all the Red Sox nation? Well, I thought about it uh, for many years, Roger. And, uh, you know, I came to the realization eventually that you can't script it because you never know how it's going to end. You just have to roll with it. My only hope was that it would be something definitive, not a check swing. Did he swing or didn't he? Diving catch, did he catch it or didn't he? I wanted something very clear, very definitive. And it was turned out to be a routine ground ball to the pitcher. And I think that uh, was the way to do it. And I don't know if I planned, can you believe it or not, that sort of become my catchphrase uh, just happened. And the first time I remember using it, I might've used it before in big moments, but was when Bill Miller hit the walk-off home run in the A-Rod Veritech game, July 27th of that season. Um, but I think that was a natural reaction. The first time in 86 years, can you believe it? So kept it as simple as possible. And, uh, I was happy it made its way out to a bottle cap opener. It paid for my daughter's senior year at Boston college. I wonder if Doug Mankiewicz still has that baseball from that world series. I know he kind of, he, does he still have that Joe, that baseball? No, fun ball paid, thankfully. Okay. But I remember I was, and I, I had the story myself and didn't think much of it. We were on the bus seven o'clock in the morning, coming back from St. Louis. And it was amazing. We landed and these construction workers are in partially uh, built edifices waving and everyone was cheering as our buses uh, went from Logan airport to Fenway park. And Mikavich and his wife were sitting in front of myself and my wife, Jan. And I thought, Hey, who, Where's the ball? He says, I got it and I'm keeping it. It's going to pay for my daughter's year at uh, Florida State. I thought nothing of it. I should have. And then in December, Dan Shaughnessy, the great columnist for the Boston Globe, asked Minkiewicz and it became a major issue and a battle. Um, I think it was funny. I should have, I should have had that story myself. But uh, fortunately, it's at the right place at the Hall of Fame. Yeah, you didn't know what it would turn into. Um, but uh, let me ask you this, Joe, because we usually take part of this podcast to talk about the technical aspects of of play by play. And, you know, you're, say you're driving in the car and, and you pop on a baseball game. What, what makes really good play by play specifically on the radio to you? Well, I think I was number one being as descriptive as you can about the play that that ball's only in play about eight minutes out of three hours, now three and a half hours. So you really have to capitalize and be ready when the ball is put in play uh, and take advantage and describe as vividly as you can what limited action there is in the course of a baseball game. I think that is the most important thing to paint that word picture. And, you know, I think I pride myself on doing that more than anything else. Of course, you have to fill between pitches today, especially today, with uh, some of these pitchers taking 35 to 50 seconds between pitches 
We desperately need a pitch clock. That has to happen. Um, but I think, you know, you have to be consistent, too. You have to be there every day. Can't have uh, take one game, put it on remote control, and then another game, be totally tuned in. You have to be ready and consistent. And number one, you have to have trust. Your audience has to trust you. Uh, you can't fake excitement when you have a dull game, and certainly there are many of those. You really have to be consistent and to be as truthful and as honest and as frank as you can be. Uh, you can't cover up for players when they make mistakes or don't hustle. It doesn't mean you go out of your way to be critical either. I mean, we all know, you know, where our paycheck comes from, but it's, it's a more a matter of the personal integrity of uh, being an honest reporter. I think that's the first lesson you can have and to describe the action as vividly as you can and try to put that fan in the ballpark. Has it been a challenge throughout the years with the amount of broadcast partners you've had? And, you know, especially the one year where they kind of rotated a lot of guys in and out a couple of years ago, how, how, how tough is it to, especially, you know, baseball, you want to create that conversational, like you're just sitting at a bar with each other and you kind of need a pretty decent relationship to make it sound good I think to to the listener when it comes to baseball how, how tough can it be when when you have to work with a bunch of different partners or how tough was it for you well I think yeah everybody adjusts but uh you know I'm generally not difficult to get along with uh, but I think you give people their space you try to work together it's a team effort uh the only unwritten rule we have is Write a note if the guy makes a mistake and doesn't realize it rather than uh, acting like you're being corrective. Uh, but I've had great partners. I mean, I had seven years of Ken Coleman who taught me so much. I had three wonderful years with a guy who called himself the Burley Broadcaster, the late Bob Starr. He taught me a lot. He had a saying, it's not my life and it's not my wife when I would uh, take losses personally and uh, mope about them after the games. I never quite learned that lesson because you know, I still live and die with wins and losses. But Bob was wonderful. Then I had 14 great years with Jerry Truppiano, who was my contemporary, same age and same experience. We had a wonderful time. Uh, Dave O'Brien was a great partner. We really meshed together. Uh, Dave, younger than me by, I don't know, 10 years or so. And uh, he and I just had wonderful chemistry and you know, the 2019 season was, uh, I had three great years of Tim Neverett, too, a uh, native New Englander, who, again, was probably uh, 15, 20 years younger. But we had a lot of fun together and, of course, they shared the 2018 119-win season. Uh, 2019 was challenging with all the different partners. I had a lot of fun with most of them. Uh, I think it was a, a mistake to do that. They could have found a broadcaster in time. but. Um, that's the way our management chose to do it. And, uh, I had a lot of fun with Mario and Pemba, uh, Chris Berman for five games and, uh, Sean McDonough and some of the other people uh, we work with, but, uh, I like having Will Fleming now as an outstanding young partner and, uh, he's the heir apparent. I think, uh, we have a very good time and, you know, it's just a matter of meshing his personalities. And the first thing is to love baseball. That is 
the bottom line. That is the prerequisite. And, uh, you know, I think we have had a lot of fun with the different people over the years, and uh, they're all good friends. And you've got, of course, to mentor a lot of young broadcasters. You mentioned teaching uh, some in the offseason, but uh, one broadcaster in particular I was curious to hear you talk about was Don Orsillo because you're able to see him from his earliest stages as basically an intern. All of a sudden, he's the television voice of the team for so many great moments. Now he's doing well in San Diego. Just what has it meant to you to get to watch his career from its very start to where it is now? Well, we're very happy and proud of Donnie. He's done a great job, but he took my class at Northeastern, and we could see his love of baseball. That was a great class because I had not only Don, but uh, Leslie Sterling, who became the first female public address announcer, the first person of color in the American League. She's now an Episcopal priest. Uh, but she and Orsillo were in the class with a lot of basketball players, and they set the tone. And uh, I could see Don's love for the game. So we were looking for an intern, and uh, we hired Don. He did two years with us. Uh, one with Ken Coleman and one with Bob Starr during that transition period. And uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, spent uh, a couple of innings going to the concession stand. He had a huge appetite. Uh, but, but he learned well. And then he paid the price. I mean, he went to Pittsfield. I believe it was his first broadcast job. He might have done Springfield hockey, too, at the same time. But he made like $1,500 for a season. Pulled a tarp when there was a rain delay. I think they only did away games and uh, he worked in the press box for the home games and he worked there. He worked in Binghamton, New York. He did several years at the Pawtucket Red Sox and worked his way up and got the TV job uh, with the Red Sox and did very well. And of course, then went to San Diego where he's got a great life. He fishes in his backyard off Coronado Bay, drives 15 minutes to Petco Park. Well, Petco Park special for him, but of course, uh, you get to call Fenway Park home, and then now what's coming up to be your 40th season, you've seen the ballpark change a lot, but there's still that historic buzz there, and I love going to games there as a fan. I can only imagine what it's like for you to broadcast there each and every home game. Just how special is broadcasting at Fenway for you and the knowledge you have of the pesky pole, fisk pole, the green monster, you know, all these different landmarks you get to talk about and paint the picture of so beautifully on the radio. Well, it really is a privilege to be there, Roger, for every home game, as I've done now. This will be the 40th season, as you said. Um, first time I ever went to Fenway was 1967 as a fan and stood in the center field bleachers. And, uh, there were just benches there. It was a standing room crowd. Of course, that was the impossible dream season, which really turned the Red Sox franchise around. Still the most important year, probably, in Red Sox history. but. Uh, to have that as your office is really a special privilege. There was nothing quite as romantic as coming back from a trip at 3 a.m. Fenway Park with just a few lights on and looking out at the Green Monster uh, and thinking of all the wonderful things and all the great players who've graced it over the years. And we've seen it grow. I mean, we thought uh, we used to have meetings uh, in the late 90s with management showing us plans for the new Fenway Park. And when this ownership group took over with John Henry, Larry Lucchino, and Tom Warner, and modern engineering had changed, they found a way to save Fenway and to modernize it. And whoever knew we could have seats on top of the Green Monster, or that some of the modern amenities could be incorporated into a ballpark built in 1912. 
Uh, it's just a very, very special place. And I think you have to, uh, a few things you have to learn, wait on fly balls to left field. That wall's 37 and a half feet high, so. And wind patterns can change. So sometimes a ball could be crushed and end up a single, or it could be a pop fly and end up in the monster seats, formerly the screen. And this will be my final one, Joe, but, you know, transitioning a little bit, and we have a lot of college students that listen to this podcast and, and they'd love to hear the journeys and the stories. And I'm sure you get a lot of tapes of, of young broadcasters. What's the, the biggest mistake you think you hear or just a common theme of what you think maybe the, the younger broadcaster or the younger generation is maybe forgotten when it has come to radio and, and needs to maybe work on a little bit. Is there a common thing that you, you hear when you listen to tapes? Well, every tape is different, certainly. I think uh, attention to detail remains critical. Um, you know, there's, I remember once Jack Craig, who was a columnist for the Boston Globe, uh, wrote that uh, I didn't describe a ground ball to shortstop the same way every time. They're different. Is it a two hopper? Is it a top roller? Uh, Try to be as vivid and as specific as you can in the detail. And, you know, you don't always have to analyze and editorialize. There's certainly a place for that. You want opinions. Um, but I think the first step is to be as descriptive in detail as you can be. And the other thing is be conversational. Don't try to sound like Ron Radio. Try to talk to the audience as you're talking to the guy sitting next to you in the stands, you know, why you project, you can't leave that out. Certainly you have to project because something's lost from, you know, your voice box to the audience at home. So, but I think you, you want to sound as conversational as you can and as comfortable because you want the audience to trust you and to be comfortable listening to you. Those are the prerequisites for any kind of success. Well, Joe, we'll get you out on this. Uh, of course, this upcoming season uh, about to be your 40th with the Boston Red Sox. I've been in this business a long time. What do you hope the next 40 years look like for baseball on the radio? As technology continues changing so much, now we're able to watch uh, games in HD on our cell phones or iPads, things like that. But do you feel like there's always going to be a place for baseball on the radio? And what do you hope it looks like uh, down the road? Well, I think there will be a place for it, Roger, because baseball radio is portable. So I think... Uh, from that standpoint, there will always be a place for audio baseball. It is a radio game because of the pace of the game. It's not a great TV game uh, unless they can make it 3D somehow. But I think uh, there will be a place for it. And, uh, you know, you just hope it continues and the pace of the game picks up. Uh, I do worry about losing young fans because of the slow pace of the game. And the way baseball tends to shoot itself in the foot so often with disputes between owners and players and not correcting obvious needs like the slow pace. Sometimes the people in uniform are the last to realize how slow and methodical and boring a game can be when the pitcher's taking 45 seconds between pitches, especially with the game on the line. So I think, uh, you know, it, ha it has to step up and reform itself. And I think uh, in that case, it can continue. It's still a great game. It's still a game can be played uh, with great skill by people of average size. 
and uh, you know, we, we love it. It's still America. To me, it's America's pastime. I know the numbers don't show that, but hopefully it can uh, continue uh, to thrive and uh, stay with the times. We certainly love it, too. And we've uh, really enjoyed this conversation, Joe. And before we let you go, one more. Uh, I'll keep looking over your shoulder at a couple of scorecards that are hung up on the wall. What can you tell us about those and uh, uh, how you keep score and uh, wh- why those are special to you? Well, I made, made great Christmas presents, too. Uh, this 04 World Series championship, the St. Louis game is the Yankee uh, game four. When we won the pennant and also uh, Roger Clemens 20 strikeout game. Uh, I've got uh, many of them. In fact, uh, I've given some to players over the years, highlighting their big moments. And, you know, my, my scorecard is uh, hieroglyphics. I don't think most people could figure it out. I wasn't blessed with very good handwriting. Should have gone to Catholic school. The nuns would have taken care of that if, if anyone could improve it. But uh, I have my own system and, uh, I don't know if anyone really could decipher it, but I do have the green in home runs. And I think uh, players like to see that the K the red case for strikeouts. So as I say, it it was a great uh, idea for Christmas gifts. All you had to do was play for the frame. Well, it's certainly good. Certainly some great moments you've had with the Boston Red Sox. And we hope for many, many more. Joe, just thank you so much for the time you've given us here on broadcaster hour. We appreciate it. Okay, well, thanks so much for having me, and uh, best to you at Alabama and Gainesville. All right, thanks, Joe. That sounds good. Thanks to Joe Castiglione. Thanks to all of you for watching Broadcaster Hour.